hardly worth uh, grabbing it because there's no PowerPoint uh, for this, I don't think. The reading is from Luke chapter 11, and just a cluster of verses, verses 9 to 13. Luke chapter 11, verses 9 to 13. Peter's going to cover a lot of ground in his talk, so this is just to set the scene, as it were, and uh, be thinking about where it comes in as he delivers his talk in a few minutes. So Luke chapter 11, verses 9 to 13. Jesus is speaking. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's been a lovely weekend thus far with you. Uh, I was here in uh, 2010, and it's nice to be back and trying to get my laptop to boot up properly. Uh, Let's try that. There we go. I need to swap PowerPoints. Uh, I bring you greetings from the uh, Evangelical Church in Montenegro and Serbia, by the way. I was there uh, just over a week ago, and particularly the Christians in uh, Belgrade uh, wanted me to pass on their thanks for support that they've received in the past from this church, actually. It was quite a sort of, oh, uh, you're going to go and do this weekend in Cardiff. What church is that? Highfields Church. Oh, yeah, Highfields Church. We know them. They've given us support in the past. So one of those small world syndrome situations. And they wanted me to pass along their thanks and uh, noticed that they would uh, very much value some more money so they can buy another minibus. (laughs) (laughs) I've labelled this talk Understanding Spirituality, the Jesus Way. Uh, My book that we've been theming this weekend around is called Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment. And I look at the historical evidence for Jesus through the lens of thinking about spirituality. What is spirituality? What did Jesus think spirituality was? And what role did he see himself playing in people's spirituality? Spirituality is a bit of a buzz term these days, but often banded around with much definitional vagueness. If you learn one thing about philosophers today, it'll be that they like clear definitions of things, so we all know what we're talking about. So, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to begin with. This will give us an in to what spirituality is. This is the response of the crowd to Peter's first evangelistic sermon at Pentecost. When the people heard this, everything that Peter's just said, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now note, first of all, that there's an element of the head here, of what people believed. Peter had communicated 
some testimony about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And at least some of the people in that crowd, on the basis of what he told them and the disciples were doing, came to believe the same thing about Jesus as the disciples did. But it wasn't just a matter of the head. They were cut to the heart. They had an attitudinal response to what they now believed about Jesus. And that combination of their new beliefs about Jesus and their attitude towards what they believed about Jesus led them to respond by saying, brothers, what shall we do? How should we practically respond to this gospel that we have just heard preached? Beliefs and actions and attitudes, you could put them in a sort of flowing circle. I've structured it like this for this. A spirituality, you could suggest, is a way of life, a way of relating to reality. It's about your relationships, your relationship to yourself, to each other, to the world around you, to whatever ultimate reality really is. And everyone has a spirituality. Everyone has some beliefs about the nature of reality, particularly the nature of ultimate reality. Everyone has some attitudes towards the world. Everyone uh, acts in a certain way because of what they believe and and the the commitments of their heart. And indeed, I would say everybody wants their spirituality not to be pulling them apart in different directions, but to integrate them, to be a cohesive whole. If you want a, a litter of alliterative way of understanding it uh, you could think of a spirituality as a matter of your head and your heart and your hands flowing from one to another Jesus taught that the greatest commandment involved loving God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength it seems that he had some insight into this spirituality business quite a long time ago Here, as I mentioned, I've put the the beliefs and the attitudes and the actions into the the circle because they tend to reinforce themselves once you build this into your life. And our relationship with God, loving God with all of our self, our spirituality, our beliefs, our attitudes, our actions, leads us to loving neighbour as ourself. As the American Christian philosopher Douglas Groothaus warns, Christianity makes claims on the entire personality. Accepting it as true is not a matter of mere intellectual assent, but of embarking on a new venture in life, a new way of living. Intellectual assent is involved, it's crucial, but it's not the be-all and end-all of the matter. It flows over into our whole way of life. So to truly understand Jesus, you have to be willing, as a matter of your heart, you have to be willing to stand under the authority of whatever the truth about him is. To stand under the authority of the truth to determine your beliefs about him, your attitudes towards him, and your actions with respect to him. As Jesus put it, whoever has ears, let them hear. There's got to be a receptivity to the message. 
Otherwise, you're not even going to bother grappling with the message. Reminds me of G.K. Chesterton, who once said that Christianity, the Christian ideal, has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. So I would say that to truly understand Jesus is about wisdom as much as it is, it is about knowledge. The, the word philosophy, uh, you might like to learn a little bit of linguistics, comes from two Greek words, philo and sophia. Um, sophia, where we get the name Sophie from. Uh, philo means brotherly love and sophia means wisdom. Philosophy is literally philosophia, the brotherly love of wisdom. And understanding Jesus is as much about wisdom as about knowledge. Now you might be thinking, what's the difference here? Give me a distinction. Philosophers love distinctions. That's all part of definitions. So here we go. What's the difference? Wisdom, I would say, is about having the right attitude towards knowledge. A matter of having the right attitude of heart towards the life of the mind. But of course, as well as our attitudes, it is key. What do we hear? What is the message that we're grappling with? And so many people today, for understandable reasons, can be misinformed about what Jesus' message is. Let me spend a few slides laying into a recent RE textbook. This is a key stage three textbook being used in Schools to Teach Religious Education. This is a description of Christian beliefs from this book. It goes like this. Whilst on earth, we have to try and lead a good life. After a person's death, God will judge them. God will look at everything that person did and said and thought in their lifetime. Those judged good will be rewarded. Those who have been evil will be punished. This is so simplified as to be a misleading oversimplification. Let me suggest three problems with this key stage three description of Christianity. Problem number one. That description makes God's judgment and the judgment day and so on a matter of arbitrary punishment rather than organic consequence. Think of it like this. If you park on a double yellow line and the traffic warden catches you, they give you a fine. Now that fine is an arbitrary punishment for the crime that you've committed. Why £50 or £100 or whatever the fine is? Why that exact monetary amount? Well, we had to pick some amount. Why not you've got to do an hour's community service instead? We could do that instead. It's a completely sort of arbitrary choice as to what the punishment is for that crime. On the other hand, supposing you indulged in far too many pints of a Friday evening. The fact that you then wake up on Saturday morning with a blinding headache... That's not an arbitrary punishment for your overindulgence in alcohol, is it? That's just an organic consequence of overindulging. 
And what if because you'd drunk so much, you'd lost leave of your senses and you got in your car and drove home and didn't drive very well and had an accident and hurt someone else because of it? Well, your sense of, of, of guilt about having done that, that's not an arbitrary punishment for your crime of drinking whilst driving. That's an organic consequence of what you did. And maybe we can think about God's judgment on us as more a matter of organic consequence than some arbitrary punishment, as if God is like the great traffic warden in the sky, waiting to hand out arbitrary rewards and punishments. As Jesus puts it in John's Gospel, now this is eternal life. Here's Jesus going to give a definition. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That eternal life is a matter of knowing God through Christ. God has given us eternal life, says John in 1 John, and this life is in his Son. It's a matter of being in Christ. There's an organic relationship between whether or not you know God in a personal relationship, whether or not you're in relationship with Christ, and whether or not you stay in that relationship for eternity. If you don't want to know God, you don't want to be in Christ, he's not going to force you against your will. And you can see where that leads. The second problem with that textbook definition of Christianity is it completely ignores the cross. It completely ignores the place of divine forgiveness in the whole scheme of the gospel. And thirdly, it completely fails to mention what we're saved for. It ignores what a saving relationship, an eternal life relationship with God in Christ means here and now for our spirituality. It's not just a matter of taking out the insurance policy against the judgment day. This is about how are we going to live here and now. See, far from being about gaining eternal life for ourselves by having the right sort of spirituality, you know, being good enough people and all of that, Jesus' good news, his gospel, was about our humbly accepting eternal life in him as a free gift. A free gift that enables us to enter into and live out the right sort of spirituality. We don't bank brownie points to earn our way into heaven by having the right kind of spiritual life. We receive the gift of eternal life in Christ that then enables us to live out the right kind of spirituality. So Jesus' gospel was all about the arrival of this new but long-planned, long-predicted, long-prophesied phase in God's relationship with creation, and especially humanity. And it centred around Jesus himself as the divine Son of Man, from uh, Daniel chapter 7, the vision of Daniel 7, combining the roles of messianic king and suffering servant from the prophets in a a way that really wasn't quite expected by 
his disciples. He saw himself as the suffering servant who was himself the divinely appointed, divine entry point into the spirituality of the kingdom. As William Lane Craig, an American Christian philosopher, puts it, one of the undisputed facts about the historical Jesus of Nazareth is the centrality of the advent of the kingdom of God to his teaching. It's clear that Jesus thought of himself as central to the coming of God's kingdom. Most New Testament critics acknowledge that the historical Jesus acted and spoke with a self-consciousness of divine authority and that he saw in his own person the coming of the long-awaited kingdom of God and invited people into its fellowship through fellowship with him. That is, Jesus didn't just see himself as a prophet called upon to teach or even someone called upon to embody a spirituality of love for God, self and neighbour, so that he gives us a good role model. Not just. But Jesus also understood the kingdom of God is coming in and through his own ministry in person. And he wants us to receive divine forgiveness by receiving him into our lives. Receiving him in such a way that we become part of him. And this is the meaning of the, the theological term, communion. And actually, I found a very good resource for, for getting a deeper understanding of the meaning of communion through reading an atheist philosopher. Um, sometimes I read atheists for devotional purposes, and not everything they say is wrong. This is the French atheist with the fabulous name of André Comte-Sponville, writing in his book, The, uh, the Book of Atheist Spirituality. He says, in monotheistic cultures, that's cultures that believe in one God, People are bound together, horizontally, so to speak, by the fact that all of them feel bound to God, vertically. It's like the the, the warp and the woof of the religious material. The community of believers is as powerful as this double bond is solid. For it's communion that creates the community, far more than the other way around. It's communion that creates community. It's a communion that turns a human group into a community instead of a series of juxtaposed and competing individuals. And he uses this fantastic illustration of the cake. And he says, to commune is to share without dividing. And this may sound paradoxical. Where material goods are concerned, it is indeed impossible. People cannot commune in a cake. Because the only way to share the cake is to divide it up between us. But in a family or a group of friends, people can commune in the pleasure they take in eating a delicious cake together. All share the same delectation but without having to divide it up. I enjoy enjoying cake with my friends, and that doesn't mean I have to get only 5% of the enjoyment, even if I only get 5% of the cake. I think that gives a really good insight to the theological meaning of communion, of the Christian community, communing in Christ. As Jesus put it, I am the vine, 
you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That is, the image of Jesus as divine, and we get ourselves grafted into relationship with God, grafted into the life of the kingdom, grafted into Christ as a community of believers. Of course, Jesus doesn't just offer this gospel to people and say, just believe, just have blind faith that this is true. As I was encouraging the young people to think about earlier, he actually says things to people like, believe on the evidence of the miracles. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. I want to give you solid reasons for thinking that I'm right about the nature of spirituality and the role I should play in your spirituality. If you want to dig further into uh, the historical evidence about Jesus, uh, Kevin still has four copies left of my book, Understanding Jesus, at knockdown bargain basement prices. If you take a look at it and it seems a bit intimidating to you, uh, buy it and use it as a doorstop, and then also buy yourself uh, a copy of Doug Powell's Resurrection Eyewitness, uh, a very... Uh, nicely laid out, enticing way to get yourself into some of the historical evidence uh, about Jesus. Anyway, making a, a positive response to the belief that Jesus truly offers a relationship with God in and through his own person would constitute a belief in Jesus that incorporates you into the communal spirituality of the kingdom, which someone described as The kingdom of God is the community called by God to love him and express that love in service to others. Sometimes, uh, because I've been to too many universities, in order to grasp something simple, I have to read uh, read someone, explain it using long words. It's a bit of a character flaw, I know. Um, But sometimes the long words help you really clearly see what's going on. So indulge me for a moment whilst I quote from Dallas Willard, because I found this helpful, and maybe you will too, and the next slide will put it in a slightly simpler form. Dallas Willard is an American philosopher who writes a lot about discipleship and Christian discipleship. And he says this, When I study anything, I take its order and nature into my thoughts and even into my feelings and my actions. You see their head and heart and hands working together. Disciples of Jesus are people who want to take into their being the order of the kingdom. They devote their attention, their thoughtful inquiry, their practical experimentation to the order of the kingdom as seen in Jesus, in the written word of scripture, in others who walk in the way, and indeed in every good thing in nature, history, and culture. And he says that as a result of that discipleship to Jesus, you gain a confidence in, a reliance upon Jesus, a faith, a trust in Jesus as the one appointed to save us that that leads to a desire to be his apprentice in living. He says the abundance of life we find through that apprenticeship to Jesus naturally leads to obedience to Jesus and the more obedience we have to Jesus in the life of discipline, of discipleship, that requires, leads to, and issues from a pervasive inner 
transformation of the heart and soul. It becomes this positive feedback loop. The more we trust Jesus, the more we want to obey him, the more we obey him in, in living the kind of life that he calls us to, the more we find that that gives us true human fulfillment and flourishing because we're more and more being the kind of beings that God created us to be. We're fulfilling our function in life. We're really tapping into our real meaning and purpose in existence, becoming truly human by taking on the character of Christ, by putting on Christ through discipleship, apprenticeship to him. Michael Wilkins more succinctly defines discipleship to Jesus as living a fully human life in this world, in union with Jesus Christ and his people, growing in conformity to his image and helping others to know and become like Jesus. So Jesus invites us into the life that is truly life, as 1 Timothy puts it. And here we come back to the reading we started with from Kevin. And this is in uh, Matthew's version. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, the door will be opened. Who who seek for what? Who ask for what? Who knock on what door? Who knock on the door of Christ, the gate. Christ, the entrance point to the kingdom of God. Who want in to that life of fully human discipleship to Jesus. And then Jesus says, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest, I'll give you peace, I'll give you shalom, to use the ancient Hebrew word. Peace with God. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That when we take on discipleship to Jesus, we find ourselves liberated to be the kind of beings more and more that we were meant to be. So let me leave you with some questions. And different people will be at different stages in this series of questions about how you relate to Jesus. And then we'll end with a prayer. First question is this. If Jesus is who he said he was, would I want to receive him into my life by becoming his forgiven disciple? Am I open to that? Do I have ears to hear? If so, am I genuinely, that is, am I seriously and humbly seeking to understand whether or not Jesus really is who he said he was? If so, do I yet believe? Am I at the point of now believing that Jesus is indeed who he claimed to be? And if so, how am I going to respond? Will I respond appropriately? That is, not merely by acknowledging a fact to store away to bring out the next pub quiz, but by acknowledging Jesus, trusting him, entering into a Jesus-centered spirituality. Now, different folks here will be at different stages along that process of questions that you want to ask about how you relate to Jesus. And I'd like to end with a prayer. And for some people, this might just be a nice opportunity to rededicate yourself to discipleship to Christ. 
For other people, maybe this might be an opportunity to take a first step of saying, yes, I want to be Christ's disciple. For others of you, it won't be appropriate for you to pray this because you're at an earlier stage in that series of questions. Um, I'll just leave it with you to see whether you want to pray along with this in the quiet of your own heart. Let me read this out for us, and then we're done. Dear Jesus, I believe you are the divine Son of God. And I know I need the forgiveness you offered by dying on a cross and evidenced by rising from the dead. I want a forgiven relationship with God through you. And I want to live as your disciple forever. Please forgive me and accept me into your kingdom, communing with me by your Holy Spirit and helping me to worship you with all of my mind and heart and strength. Thank you.